Hello, dear listener. Thank you for making time to listen to the Kind Mind podcast. My name's Todd Fink. Just a couple things I want to share with you before we jump in. I'm really happy to announce that we have um, a physical venue for our monthly Kind Mind gatherings. That's when we record these episodes. It's going to be at the Homestead 1854 in Plano, Illinois. The address is 611 East Main Street. It's a little off the beaten path at the edge of Chicagoland, but a worthwhile oasis. I'd like you to think of this for those in the area who can attend as a monthly micro-retreat. The historic and charming property has plenty of space to meet a friend or make a friend, to meditate or sit and chat. There's a labyrinth that's beautiful that you can walk and collect your thoughts. We'll be meeting outdoors under a timber pavilion in the warmer months and in a a chapel that's been remodeled into a yoga studio meeting space in the colder months. And the owners, Chet and Mary Kay, are very appreciative and understanding of our intentions. And I think that makes this a, a really meaningful next step in the Kind Mind adventure. Oh, and just... To be clear, the Kind Mind gatherings are always on the last Tuesday of the month. So the next one is Tuesday, August 30th at 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. as it normally is. But the doors will open at 6 p.m. with cocktails and mocktails and light food available for purchase. So come early if you'd like. Experience the, the property and... When we finish at 8.30, there will be time to mingle further. The venue closes at 10 p.m. You can find more info about this on my website, michaeltodfink.com slash events. And you do not have to be a Patreon member to attend these. In the spirit of the original meetings, it's going to be donation-based. That way, money is never a barrier to accessing community. But... The continuation of this will depend on being a, people being able to contribute what they can. Obviously, if you are um, a Patreon member, there's no additional donation expected of you, but we appreciate your all of your support all this time. And there's going to be new additions to the Patreon benefits. We're going to be starting a, a poetry club online pretty soon. I've also added seven more books to the recommended reading list, the the spiritual books that changed my mind, and some of the new ones include The Voodoo Quantum Leap and The Tao of Physics, two books that kind of parallel the discoveries in modern science with some of the mysticism of the spiritual traditions of Africa and the Far East. Now, Today's topic, the only certainty is uncertainty. In the past, we've talked about uncertainty being the the defining characteristic of a transition in life, and that uncertainty is also the hallmark of stress. But moments of uncertainty can really open us up to creativity and new ways of being. I tried to point out that if we rush to resolve ourselves too soon when we're in a transition, we may miss the opportunity for genuine psychological growth. 
unfamiliar circumstances prompt the brain to dedicate more resources to the hippocampus for learning and memory. This was recorded in May of last year, 2021, so I was talking about my cold water and cryotherapy treatments and how it's pretty uncomfortable at first, but then there's a mental equilibrium that dawns and finally the body emerges with more vitality. And there's a similar tripartite when we wade into our feelings and wait for clarity or for the right idea to arise by itself. Shortly after this was recorded, I actually started a series of acupuncture treatments with one of our community leaders, Kim Miner, in the area. And she also recommended heat therapy for me. So we were doing, we were burning moxa on the, the spine. And that was a different kind of tolerance I had to practice. Similar to being in a sauna, it can be uncomfortable to be hit with all that heat. But then your mind adjusts, and when you come out, you can feel this rejuvenation. But I also want to say that I think there's something about acupuncture that can help us be present to ourselves and feel more in on the energetic levels. And if you have a good practitioner like Kim, she can really hold that space for you to heal. I think laying on the table with the needles in you forces you to face your restlessness or any uneasiness in the mind and be patient with yourself to allow that to, to settle. So there, I think there are additional benefits to acupuncture beyond what the, you know, the obvious goals may be in terms of healing a wound or helping to support recovery from an illness. And so when you're going through any transition, personally or collectively, like we have been doing with the pandemic and inflation and geopolitical risk and uncertainty, the urge to go back is instinctive because the past is familiar and any answer or evolutionary algorithm is based in memory. However, our eyes are in the front, and we are successful when we commit to the new way of being. But before you march out again into your new job, or new relationship, or new sense of stability in a new residence, whatever it may be, I encourage you to pause in the stillness of the unidentified. That moment offstage is closer to reality as ultimately the roles we play are just roles. Every act, just an act. And our character, just a character, in the evanescent drama of the world. In this talk, I revisit an anecdote from my college days about how I sat with and navigated through an uncertain period of my life and was blessed to have an unexpected encounter with a really special woman, a psychic medium named Reverend Beatrice Ann Gaiman. Sometimes I refer to her as Beatrice Gaiman or Beatrice Ann. 
she went by Anne in her personal life and professional life, B. Anne Gaiman. But I sometimes refer to her as Beatrice Anne because that's how me and my friends refer to her. She was the wife of one of the Georgetown English professors who has his own interesting background. He was a Jesuit priest and left his calling or left the priesthood because he had a vision and he had a a wish to meet his soulmate who manifested as B. Ann Gaiman. But I want to give a little bit more of um, of a background about her because this was just somebody that I spent only a few moments with, but I probably wouldn't be here talking to you right now if I hadn't met her. She was born into a family of Amish Mennonites in Michigan and was the seventh child in the family. But she had a very stressful, very stressful time as a young person. And at 15 years old, during a, a bout of depression, after leaving home, she actually attempted to end her life, which I didn't know about till many years later, but felt that she was saved by spirit. And that led to her meeting with a, a medium named Wilbur Hull, who guided her and taught her the fundamentals of her religious foundation called spiritualism. She ultimately gained international attention for her help in solving crimes, locating oil, and missing persons, healing illnesses, and connecting family members with their loved ones. She's worked with royal families, top government agencies, including the FBI and CIA, police departments, judges, CEOs, and individuals from all walks of life. If you'd like to see her, she was featured in an HBO documentary called No One Dies in Lilydale which I think was filmed maybe 10, 15 years ago. So it's the cinematography is a little outdated, but you can really get a sense of her calm and loving presence. Lilydale, New York has the largest concentration of psychic mediums in one town. There's also a book about her life and that of her husband, Professor Wayne Knoll from Georgetown, who passed away almost 10 years ago. The book's called The Priest and the Medium, written by Suzanne Geisman. But anyways, I don't say any of this as some objective certainty about psychic ability or intuition. This is only to say that I had a meaningful and life-changing encounter with Reverend Gaiman, and I think this podcast is also a, a kind of audio journal of, of my life, and I'm happy to be able to share some of these stories with you. I mentioned a practice of just going outside into nature and letting go of our naming of things that we perceive. So to just take in a tree or the clouds, or the birds, without naming it, and suspending all comparison, like the thoughts, this is the greenest leaf I've ever seen. So this is a kind of Zen concept of beginner's mind, and it can induce a subtle mental freedom. So we just notice shapes, colors, textures, contours, 
but then we don't name those either. And we can go deeper and deeper into our contact with reality and get exposed to the more fundamental contiguity of phenomena and not necessarily ex experience ourselves as separate from all that is. We can also then apply this to relationships. When we engage with another person, we unknowingly bring so many preconceptions and expectations. And this can actually deny the person of being who they truly are in that moment. Or at least in our mind, we can, it can be cloaked. And the concept of personality or the construct of personality is really a kind of probability chart that we use in our mind to predict what kind of encounter we're likely to have with this person. But it can be worthwhile to hold space in our mind to allow the person to be as they are in that moment and protect the freedom for them to grow and evolve and become. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you can come to the homestead on August 30th, or one of these last Tuesdays of the month, it will be a real treat to connect there. Thank you. The other day I came across this quote from actor Stephen Fry. I'm going to read that to you. Oscar Wilde said that if you know what you want to be, then you inevitably become it. That is your punishment. But if you never know, then you can be anything. There is a truth to that. We're not nouns. We are verbs. I'm not a thing, an actor, a writer. I'm a person who does things. I write, I act, and I never know what I'm going to do next. I think you can be imprisoned if you think of yourself as a noun. The reason that resonated with me is because so much of the uncertainty that stresses people out day to day is related to who they're supposed to be, what identity they're supposed to have, and then what they're supposed to be doing, which is connected to that identity. And it reminds me of a story that I think I told part of in the past and somewhere on the podcast, but I don't think I told the whole story. So I'm going to share a little bit more about a time when I was uncertain about what I wanted to be when I grew up. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But when I was a freshman in college, people are talking about what they want to be and people are asking you what you want to be because that kind of has something to do with what you're going to study. And when it's expensive, you don't want to make the wrong choice. You want to be certain, right? So I'm in the business school my first year studying accounting and microeconomics. But I'm not really feeling fulfilled. And I just sort of justified it as I never felt fulfilled in school. So it's just unlikely that there is something that would make me feel fulfilled. And I thought... I'm studying this because I'm going to be a business person. I'm going to intern on Wall Street 
one of these summers and I'm going to get a job doing something in finance or in some kind of investing because that will make money and that will make my family secure. But it got to be more and more stressful and I was really interested in learning more about music because I loved music, I played music my whole life, but I never had much formal study. I was also very interested in meditation at the time and learning more about the mind. So for me, if I would, if I weren't in school, I would just be playing music and exploring the nature of consciousness and trying to seek out wisdom related to psychology. I had no thing I wanted to be. I didn't even have the thought, I'd like to be a musician. I just liked playing music. And I wanted to play music with people, and I enjoyed playing music with people. And most of this uncertainty I just kind of kept to myself because I didn't really know what good it would do to, to talk about it or for it to get back to my parents. I, I didn't really feel like they needed to, to be concerned about me in school and not knowing if I'm going in the right direction. All of this, I think, is just normal uncertainty for a kid. But it really started to get get stressful for me and and then one night and i think i told this before but but not as it relates to this topic my girlfriend at the time was taking an english class with a professor who had been at georgetown for a long time his wife was a very interesting woman her name was beatrice gaiman and she was an intuitive psychic who was so skilled with her gift that she was hired both by the FBI and the CIA in DC and had helped them on many high-profile cases over many decades, multiple decades. They first really took notice of her when she wrote a formal letter to the White House advising against Kennedy's trip and appearance in Dallas when he was assassinated. So anyway, she was coming to speak at our school. And I was definitely interested in in, um, attending. So I went with a group of friends. And I sat in the back of this hall. There's a lot of people. And she was talking about her life, her childhood, her gift. And she also said that part of her gift is that when she holds things that have been close to people... She picks up on their life story and there's vibrations in metal objects like rings and jewelry. And she was demonstrating this for the audience. It's called psychometry in the intuitive arts. I'm watching this going like, I wonder if any of this is true. Is this or is this all uh, bullshit? And and is anyone in on it? So I was wishing I could volunteer from the back of the room but I don't have any um, jewelry on me I rarely worn any anything metal throughout my life at some point she senses this and and actually called out to me in the room and and I'm looking around like who me he's like yeah you you want a reading right and I said yeah but I don't have anything to give you And she's like, that's okay, I can do it from here if you're okay with me speaking about you in front of the audience. 
I said, sure, I don't mind. And first she started to talk about my life, and it was very accurate about my childhood, my personality, and what I was interested in. And, and then she said, so you really aren't sure about what you're studying here, and you wish you could study psychology and music, but you're not certain about what that will lead to, what you can be with that study. And nobody knew that except me. And then she said, well, I feel like like I have a message for you that it's totally fine to step into that uncertainty about who you will be, what you will be, and just do the authentic thing and everything will be all right. And that was all I needed to hear to make a change to leave what was familiar to me up until that point at the school and totally change directions. And so the very next day, I withdrew from the the School of Business at Georgetown and reapplied to the College of Arts and Sciences. I picked psychology as my major without ever taking a course. And I signed up for music courses and just kind of threw myself into it. And my new advisor was like, this seems pretty abrupt and you have no background in psychology are you are you sure are you certain that this is what you want to do and um, I said I'm I'm certain that this is what I want to do right now and um, and so it, it I continued on that track and everything worked out and I feel like my life has been very enriched because of that change she also said that If I didn't make that change, that's okay too. I would probably be successful at what I was working towards, but there would be something probably missing inside or some longing that would still be aching. The reason why I bring this up is because it had an effect on me that's lasted to this day, and that was that I thought any time that I'm going through a period of uncertainty, I just need to go find someone like Beatrice Gaiman and get some clarity. And honestly, this has just been something that really dawned in my mind only only the other day talking with a friend. And what I what I didn't share before is a couple years later at Georgetown, Beatrice Ann came back to our school for another talk, and it, it was even way more popular. They had to move it to a much bigger hall because people the first time around had spread the word. And I attended that talk too, thinking, I'll talk to Beatrice Ann again. Even though I wasn't really uncertain and I was multiple years now into my my new path, I just thought, if there's anything at all that she can give me clarity on, I'm sure she will and that will be great. Well, she never called on me in in the room, so I found her afterwards and went up to talk to her. And it was as if she had no clue who I was, which makes sense. She probably sees a lot of people. And I'm like, um, don't you remember the last time you came to the school? Like I was the only one that you called out and wanted to talk about in front of the room. And you you know, you, you told me, you gave me permission to totally change my life's direction. And she was just kind of like, oh, well, I hope that's working out for you. Good luck, young man. And so now when I look back on that, I I realize something. That there's a problem in me and in most of us when we rush to resolve ourselves. 
And the clarity, like in the Tao Te Ching, that's, that's described by Lao Tzu, is the clarity that comes as a grace. And his prescription is, can you sit with your uncertainty? Can you be still? Can you be patient until the right idea arises by itself? That original experience that I had where I thought, okay, you just got to find someone like Beatrice Ann. What was really happening was I was sitting with my uncertainty. I wasn't rushing to change it. And it solved itself. Beatrice Ann arrived and gave me clarity. The other time I went to Beatrice Ann, I really was, I was just being impatient and non-accepting of my life as it was in that moment. And every subsequent time that I felt I was facing a major crossroads or a bit of a crisis, I looked to astrology, I looked to uh, my teacher, I looked to any intuitive to give me some clarity. One time when I felt really heartbroken years back after a breakup and I was grieving that loss, I went to a tarot reader and she basically told me, oh, don't worry, you guys will get back together several months from now. This is just a difficult bump in the road, but you both realize that you're right for each other after this time apart. So then I relax because I feel like, okay, it's certainly going to work out. And it didn't work out. But I confused myself into feeling assured. And this isn't to say that anybody who experiments with these methods of oracle or divination are, are, are doing some, anything wrong. No, I'm just saying that the idea that we can't tolerate our uncertainty is sometimes depriving us of necessary psychological growth. I'll give you an example of a, of a story of this. There was once a man who found the, the cocoon of an emperor moth and he brought it home inspired to witness the process of the transformation, the metamorphosis and the arrival of this moth, the, the breakthrough of that process. And he saw in the beginning, the, the moth has this tiny hole that it's trying to get through. And some days are going by and it's really struggling to break out of the cocoon. And after a few more days, the man's looking at the cocoon and it seems as though the, the moth inside hasn't made any progress and he's starting to get anxious thinking, well, maybe this moth isn't going to make it. So he goes and grabs a pair of scissors and trims the cocoon a little bit to help the moth. And then the moth breaks out pretty easily and he waits for it to fly, but it never takes flight. The reason was because the man actually deprived the moth of its necessary long struggle and by forcing itself through that tiny hole in the cocoon over many more days, that effort actually pushes the energy and blood out of its swollen body into the wings to make them strong enough for it to fly when it emerges. So I think it's a good analogy for our own psychological growth and, and sitting with uncertainty. 
There is a gift in this uncertainty. There is some lesson in any time anytime we're at a crossroads, any time we don't know what the next thing to do is, or any time we're in a, uh, circumstances like we've found ourselves in over the past year, where we realize nothing's really certain in life, in this country, in this world. It's hard to predict what will happen. The other night, I, I gave a talk on climate change in Rockford. It was first in-person event I've done in a long time and we were planning to do it outside because the weather showed that there was very little or no chance of rain and it was going to be sunny. When the time came it started raining and we had to adjust and, and move things inside. There's an illusion of control. There's an illusion of certainty. When we build our routines around our life we sometimes forget that nothing is guaranteed. When we, as Stephen Fry said, when we define ourselves as a noun, I'm Todd, I'm a speaker, I'm a musician, I'm a counselor, or whatever it may be, well then we have this illusion that there's something permanent, there's something static. Do we really know who we are? Or do we rush to resolve that discomfort around not knowing who we are. It would be better to try to figure out who we are than to just take on a false identity, which is what happens to most people. And then the spiritual life, the spiritual practice is basically an undoing of all of that false identification and all of the attachment that grows from the false identification. Ego is little more than attachment to that which is unreal. That which unreal in this context is anything that's not permanent. And then spiritual practice can simply be being with what is. So the beauty here, like in the example of when I was in Rockford the other night, is that you just simply pay attention to what is without judgment. You let go of the expectations and the judgment, as Bob said in the beginning. And then you get to work with things as they are. You get to be the verb instead of the noun. And there's a sense of freedom in that. There's a, a liberation waiting for those that can release the, the grip on false certainty or needing to be certain. In a sense, I've been experimenting with this idea of wading into uncertainty and the upfront discomfort. I've been experimenting with this as paralleled with some of the health issues that, that I was dealing with before, it's still dealing with it. And the urgency to just get it figured out, to, to be done with it, is really strong. But it's taught me over the last few months that I have a lot of attachment to my body, I have a lot of attachment to being healthy, and over the last few months that's diminished a little bit and that actually feels good. When I see my own body having health problems at times or having pain, I realize that I'm not in control of the body and I also realize more directly that I'm not the body. The body is just doing whatever it does. 
I can't be certain about what will happen any time I eat something. None of us can. There's no guarantee how you're going to feel, how your body's going to react, how you're going to wake up, whether or not you'll be able to sleep well. And yet all the while we're saying, I can't do this or I can't do that or I'm like this or I'm like that. When really it's just something that is unfolding and that you could just bear witness to. And, and as I look into our bodies a little bit more and look into my health more, scientists have thought that bacteria in our body, bacteria cells outnumber our human cells 10 to 1. I think that number has been adjusted to 1 to 1. But still, it means that 43% or, or more of our, of our cells are bacteria. It adds up to like 6 pounds or something like that. And that bacteria sometimes is imbalanced, but it's also necessary. It's necessary to have this much bacteria in our gut as part of our digestive tract and system. And to think that there's over a trillion, I think a trillion or more other organisms in us that work symbiotically with our life. And all of that, we say, is me, even though there's all these different life forms. So who am I? Well, when you get sick, when you have some pain, it forces you deeper into that question, into that self-inquiry. And if we didn't have these changes, if we didn't experience those changes, what would really inspire us to see through that illusion, to try to work through that attachment to the idea that I'm this body, even though this body is always changing and I can't control what it's going to do. I feel like I have some control, but ultimately that control doesn't always uh, isn't always maintained. So those are just a few insights I've had lately. And to take care of myself a little better in the inflammation, I've been doing different cold treatments like cold water or cryo chambers. But I found that practicing tolerating cold water is a lot like what I'm talking about with uncertainty. When cold water hits you or when you get into a tub of cold water, it is really uncomfortable at first. You actually feel like you can't do it and, and you want to turn back, especially if it's a really cold plunge or cold shower. But then when, once you're immersed in it, if you can sit in that, like when I meditate in the cold, then my mind's reactivity s slowly starts to settle down and I actually feel a kind of equilibrium that isn't easy to experience just from sitting in meditation and it's super peaceful and then when I come out of the chamber come out of the tub or the cold shower my body my sense of um, boundary with my body is gone and there's this kind of vibratory nature to your being that ripples out way beyond your skin and I have this sense of like renewal and vitality and even my perception and my five senses feel enhanced. So obviously you feel way better, way more alive than you did prior to the experience and that's what I think this uncertainty is like. If we just go find a way to, to get rid of it, some answer, some some solution, some resolution to ourselves, we may miss this opportunity for expansion. I want to talk to you a little bit about how to put this into practice. What you can do with mindfulness, when, 
even when you're not in uncertain circumstances, is practice going into nature and just seeing. Seeing as if you're experiencing that nature for the first time. Because what happens with our desire for certainty, we project ideas onto everything. We project preconceptions onto people. We have our prejudices. We have our images. You can start with this in nature, meaning like you look at a tree. You've probably seen a tree before, and you may have even seen that tree before. But when you're practicing this meditation on uncertainty, you want to see the tree as something new in the present moment. There are things happening in that tree that have never happened before. To look at the branch, to look at the leaves, to look at the trunk, to just see it its unique life without the projection. Otherwise, it's as if it's already defined in our mind. It's locked into the noun of tree. Then after you practice that in nature, you can actually practice this in your family, in your relationships. Seeing your spouse or seeing your children, experiment with relating to them as a verb without all of the the long history, without the projection of their personality. We talk about people's personality all the time, and in a sense, that's like climate. I have this poem in the book that I'm working on. Clouds are like thoughts. Weather is like mood. Climate is like personality. And the sky is like your awareness. So the problem with personality in our family is that it doesn't give freedom to the, to the person in the present moment. So try experimenting in the same way in your relations. Because like I said with my exper- experience in Rockford the other day, the weather told us that it was going to be sunny, but it didn't map on to reality. So no matter how many times on this day in May it rains in Rockford or is sunny in Rockford and warm, it didn't map onto reality. So it did, it did me no good in the present moment to have the projection. If that were a person or if that was a different kind of situation and I was too attached to my own preconceptions, to my own certainty, well then I would have just been in, stuck in the rain instead of working with reality as it is. So that is the practice. You can do it with any object in nature, and then you can experiment with it in social settings and relationships. Oh yeah, there's another quote from Rabindranath Tagore. I think that reflects this idea with with the weather. He said, clouds no longer come into my life to bring rain or usher in the storm, but to add color to my sunset sky. What that means is when you're just present with what is, you can remain curious and everything is interesting. There is some beauty in our own uncertainty in the crossroads that we face and the tensions that rise with uncertainty. And just being present with that as you would with a sunset opens you up to more one other thing and and maybe this will influence the 
the things you want to share, the questions you want to ask. You may have heard of uh, this system called human design, which is something that emerged based on astrology and the I Ching of China. I find it pretty interesting, just as I find astrology and other forms of divination interesting. I think these oracles, I like the I Ching a lot. I think it just gives us one more lens to look at life. So that's different than what I was saying with turning towards these things to resolve ourselves. But if I, if I was taking photos and I had a variety of lenses, I might throw on a fisheye lens just to see the world differently. It has nothing to do with belief. Putting a fisheye lens on my camera doesn't mean I believe in anything differently. It just gives me one more way of seeing. That's the idea here. But anyways, in that, that system, you may have heard that th there are different energy types. Some people are generators, some people are manifestors, some people are projectors, some people are reflectors. And again, we can get into trouble when we lock ourselves into the, a noun, being one of these things. But what I've learned loosely based on how I grew up with my brother and worked with him in our band is that he has a way of creating that's very different from me. He can close his eyes for a few minutes and open them and have a lot of clarity on anything he's working on and clarity about his life. And he's a lot more certain than I am about different things. So part of what I'm talking about tonight also pertains to people who maybe are a little bit more like me. They change their mind a lot. I change my mind a lot. And for a long time, working in music and songwriting and creating, I felt insecure about that. I wanted the kind of certainty that my brother could have. I thought if I was really a songwriter, so the identity and the noun came back in, if I'm really a good songwriter, I should be able to go grab a song now. And yes, sometimes I, I, I would have a song in a dream, but I had no control over it in the way that my brother did. So I was often comparing myself to him and the way he created and wanting to be more like that. And as I would struggle with that, I would get disappointed and down on myself and get frustrated. Over time, I came to accept that. And when I learned about human design, I think it, it helped me noticed those differences and gave me one more way to look at myself and be okay with the time it takes for me to do things. It's tough sometimes because other people around me may, may be interpreting that as procrastination or indifference or laziness. I've been accused of, of all of those. But once you start to trust the process of creativity and, and accept the uncertainty, you can just tune that out. That's what's going on right now with the book I'm working on. I've just been able to accept the way things happen and and I've learned from this these past pains that I've been through with creating that I don't have to fit myself into the life of a manifester. And it's probably okay that I'm not a manifester because I'll say, I think this is what I want to do. And the next day, I won't feel that way. So if it had come to be, then I'd have to be undoing everything that I'm manifesting. So it's also a grace. 
And then, lastly, in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna is having, is a, is a warrior who's having a long conversation with his chariot driver, Krishna, who is um, an incarnation of God. But Arjuna doesn't know it. And slowly, Krishna is trying to orient his mind towards the, the, the notion that everything he thinks he knows is not real. And in the end, due to Arjuna's willingness to step into uncertainty, to be open about his unknowing, and it starts with his own dejection, that's the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna Vishada Yoga, which means the yoga of dejection, which is how uncertainty begins. You're, you're unsure, you're insecure. And that's how the story of this enlightenment of Arjuna begins in this wisdom book. And it ends with Krishna revealing his cosmic form. But the point of this is coming back to my experience with Beatrice Ann. There was nothing Arjuna could do to see Krishna as he is, to see the truth. All he could do is stop fighting, stop resisting. And once he did, and then sat peacefully, Krishna, out of compassion, reveals his true form. So I think there's a message in that that applies to life, that the wisdom is somewhat of a grace, grace of our own self, grace of the universe, or a higher power if you believe in it. It will come at the right time. So even in, in spiritual practice, there comes a point where a person gets frustrated that they're not getting the experiences they want, and that will end up being a hindrance. People have to learn how to practice meditation without a goal in mind. You can't meditate so that you'll be great. You can't meditate so that you'll be peaceful. Otherwise, you're not meditating. Because meditation is being present with what is. A lot of people think they can't meditate because their mind doesn't settle down. We'll practice tonight what, what to do with that. But if you had to become something in meditation, if you had to find an anchor for your identity as a meditator, then it wouldn't be meditation. And when you can just practice being, everything comes at the right time. And my teacher told me that just recently even. Just be, and everything else will arrive when it's supposed to. Hi, Tad. I love that uh, to just be. You know, it seems like when we rush or hurry, um, try to do it when there's a deadline, things don't flow right. So, you know, you're spot on with letting it be and... You know, for me, I just call it divine timing is always perfect where things fall in place. Thank you, Cindy. Oh, and thank you, Todd. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. So also, building off what she just said, in the practice of meditation, you come to realize that only now is certain. I cannot be certain about the past. And I'm certainly not certain about the future. Only now, only direct experience. Anything, anything that's in our memory is not a certainty. And anything that is yet to be is an uncertainty. And there's a freedom in that. 
Thank you. Amanda? I relate to it a lot with painting. Um, I like I used to get like super rigid and I, I wanted to be able to visualize the entire painting before even like putting paint on the canvas. And I would just get super stressed out and like about doing this activity that like I want to enjoy and, you know, be present and like, yeah, just get something, just enjoy being in the present moment with it. So I've just kind of started just painting as I go and just kind of seeing like, it's kind of like the painting is like creating itself almost. Like I just, it's just a lot more relaxed and I, I do feel a lot more present with it. And then sometimes, you know, I have this like really cool thing in front of me. Sometimes I don't, but you know, then sometimes I leave it for a couple of days and like an idea comes over time. So I'm trying to just kind of like trust that I might not know what it's gonna look like now but like future Amanda might know. Future Amanda might have the answers. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think art, experimenting with art is a great way to play around with these insights because yeah, you'll, you'll notice where the pain points are with the attachment to certainty and the projections and the expectations on ourselves and on the work that we're creating. I've definitely been through a lot of that in music about what I'm supposed to be and what the song's supposed to be. I also played some different kinds of music in the past. I once did a like a weekly jazz showcase with uh, in a trio and there was no set. There was nothing planned. We would just sit down and when the time came, we just played. And that really was good for me to practice letting go. So in the future, when I had the Giving Tree Band and we would be performing something that has a structure and we played in songs that we've played before or if we were doing a particular set, I could do it with the understanding that that's still just a loose outline. Anything could happen. I could forget something or a string could break. And I was okay with that, a lot more okay with that after some of my other experiments. So yeah, thank you for sharing. I'll, I'll jump in and share something. Um, what I'm actually living through right now is a transition in living situation. Um, and we know we have to move by a certain date and we're in the process of finding finding home, finding home. Um, and I don't know if anybody, you might have heard about the markets, you know, things are going really fast. And so it's almost, there's a lot of, um, you really have to give up control. And um, one of the things that's been helping me deal with that, um, being in that like very uncertain space, and I learned it actually in human design, is that I'm a, I'm a generator. So I have to, changing, just moving my body, changing my, can actually change my energy and bring me to the present moment. And I find that that's been uh, very helpful in um, staying, you know, not finding comfort in uncertainty, but even, you know, just being able to be present with it. Thank you, Shelley, for sharing that. I'd like to add on that when people are at a crossroads in life, they can really, we can 
really tend to obsess about solving it, about the outcome. When we have to make a decision, we can obsess about it. What's the right thing to do? And if any of this resonates with you tonight, I would encourage you to experiment with letting go of that obsession, of that rumination. It doesn't always help. It doesn't always give you an answer, but it may keep you up at night and, and affect your health. And then still things will ultimately be as they are. And I think the same, same applies to a project, like a creative project, like in my case, trying to finish this book. If I don't have the answer right now, I'm just trying to be okay with that and just focus on other things and pay attention to the present moment. Those of you who face crossroads, try to catch when your mind wants to obsess over certainty. And then when you make a choice or you wade into uncertainty, the, the, the same applies to when people are holding on to not making a choice because the old way is certain, but the old way is crumbling. And you, you get the sense that you have no choice pretty soon but to let go. When, when you find yourself needing to make a decision and you have the courage to, to wade into uncertainty, understand that you cannot control the shape things take. All you can control is your motive. So like in the, the different kinds of crises that we face in our communities, in our country, in the world. I'm hearing from a lot of people saying to me, I tried to do something helpful, I tried to do something nice, and it all uh, backfired on me. Or I tried to post something positive and I got criticized by everyone because I was insensitive in some other way that I couldn't foresee. And what I tell people is, there may be nothing that you can do or not do that won't result in some kind of unpleasantness or some kind of disappointment. You can't control that. You can only control the motive in your heart, the intention in your heart. That has given me a lot of freedom also, or a lot of peace with the way things play out. To know all I can do is, in the present moment, try to be loving and kind. And I will learn. I will learn from how things unfold. I'll grow from that. And if we think of ourselves as, not as nouns, but as verbs, then it's okay because we're fluid. We're fluid. If I, if I do something with the right intention, and the outcome is unfavorable or needs to be amended, I'm a verb. I will verb again. I'll verb my way through and I'll let the process of life unfold. See, life's not a thing. Life is a process. Hello. Hello. I'm Raphael. Oh, Raphael, hi. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm nice to see you. boyfriend. Um, she, she prefers not to be on camera, so it's just me. Um, I, my question was, um, how is it, what's a, what are a few tactics to control anger when, you know, a situation's really demanding and you want to match it with your ego, but you need to keep your ego in check. Like, what's the best way to, what are some good tactics to be like, hey, ego, we need to come down a couple paces and come back to, you know, a little bit more wise mind, the logical, emotional mind. Uh, yeah, just 
how do you how do you stop yourself you know like if i can't leave the situation right if it's like a business meeting i'm, I'm talking to people it's the place is a little bit heated i'm trying to get a point across things are not going my way um what's the best like tactics there to like quell the anger oh thanks rafael i think you know maybe maybe other people have more to share on on that question um i, I would just start by saying that i think our breath is our best anchor to grounding. And it's one thing that we can be certain about. I can't be certain about the way people are thinking about me or how they're interpreting what I shared. I can't be 100% certain about what's going on in my relationship at any time because I'm not in the head of another person. And when I just bring all my senses and all my awareness to my breathing, then I'm getting into the now because the breath is happening now and the past is uncertain and the future is uncertain. And the first thing I need to do when I have anger is take care of myself. If I go to the other for understanding, for reinforcement, for an answer or for them to change, it actually reinforces the notion that I need somebody else to solve this for me. When you meditate and you ground yourself in the present moment and the anger re resolves on its own when it needs to, then you can go talk to somebody, but now you're not talking to somebody or, or you can make a request of somebody, but now you're not doing it so that they can heal you or solve you. So cope first, communicate second, and then try to understand what the anger is protecting in you um, this is independent from the episode of anger but you know looking more at ourselves, doing more self-study does the anger really protect my hurt feelings and and how can I be more open with my hurt does it is it embarrassment is it loneliness is it sadness um, and so on and and then when we know what that anger is is trying to protect we can start to take care of that primary emotion and be vulnerable with that in our self-care and in our communication thank you <laughs>